Among the many uh, interesting places that are visited in C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's one of the Narnia Chronicles, if you're not familiar with that book, one of the many, one of the many interesting places that's visited in the course of those uh, travels is Coryakin's Island. Now, Coryakin is a wizard. Coryakin is a wizard. He has been uh, called and trusted with this, this call by the mighty Aslan to superintend, to govern this island that is indwelt by these creatures called duffers. Duffers are these dwarf-like beings. There's a rebellion of some kind that's taken place somewhere in, in their past. Um, they prove to be such a stubborn, uh, foolish bunch that Cory Aiken, as a wizard, has, finds himself just pressed to cast a spell upon them wherein their two legs are transformed into one and then this large, oversized foot. They look ridiculous, and they hate how they look. Uh, over the course of a time, they come to, to despise this and what they feel like that this terrible despot has done to them, that they go ahead and they sneak into his castle, they steal his spell book, they cast a spell upon themselves to make themselves invisible so that now they don't have to look at themselves and no one else can see just how terrible they look. Uh, so much of life on that island is warped and twisted because of how confused these duffers are about the character of their ruler. They think him, while he is a good guy, while he clearly intends and is moving only towards their best, they think him to be a tyrant. They think him to be a despot. They want to be free of the shackles of Coryakin, and they speak accordingly. The reader can see something of the foolishness of their ways, and we find ourselves laughing at their ridiculousness, not just how they look, but how they talk, how they live, how they think of this wise wizard. We laugh at them, but it does raise a question. Do we know who our ruler is? Do we know the character of the, the king of this realm? Jesus, because the degree to which we have our ideas of his character and what he's like all askew, our life in his realm will look like foolishness too. So we need to have that straight. If you have your Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. This is one of the four accounts of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. Luke 19, this is the third of the four Gospels that we have, Mark, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke. Luke 19, I'm going to read starting back in verse 28 and on through the end of the chapter to verse 48. So Luke 19, starting in verse 28. Hear now God's holy word. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, his owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, 
the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything that they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, as the prophet says, the, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So we come now to the study of your word, and we ask that you would help us to realize how vain and empty our own words are, our own ideas and thoughts and preconceptions, and rather rather keep going down that path. We ask that you would set us right. We ask that you would shape our minds and, and hearts, uh, cause something new to take place in every man, woman, child's heart here in this room. May we, not a soul, leave this room unchanged because of an encounter with the living God through his word by the power of his spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name, the king who has come and is coming again. Amen. Brunei. Brunei is not exactly a sovereign realm that gets a whole lot of attention in the news, but it has just made the, the headlines as of recent. Now, i got to tell you, the only reason I know anything about Brunei is because I read a little bit about it this past week, so if you don't know anything, it's okay. Brunei is a sovereign state on the island of Borneo in southeast Asia, and it has just gone through a process of making some legal reforms to their governing structures such that now they will be more in line with Sharia law. Authorities now have the right to stone to death an adulterer, to flog anyone found drinking an alcoholic beverage, to cut off the limbs of someone who is caught stealing. All this is going on because of Sultan Hassanal Bolkiah's desire to carry this all forward. Now, just so you know, the Sultan in uh, Brunei, because of the way the Constitution was written decades ago, has absolute authority over the realm. He had that even before he assumed power. Absolute authority over his realm. But it's interesting, just a few years ago, this guy, the Sultan, who already had absolute power over everything, um, had the Constitution rewritten to, rewritten to make, and I don't quite know how you do this, but he had the Constitution rewritten to make his word understood to now be infallible. That's a neat trick. 
And it brings to mind the famous words oft quoted by Lord Acton. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's why it's good and wise for systems of government, whether in Southeast Asia or North America or Europe or wherever you want to look, it's wise to have a system of checks and balances because of the inclinations of the human heart. In every case, that is true, except one. Except one. Jesus needs no check and balance. His rule is good and true. His rule alone is good and true. And we're reading something of, learning something of that rule, even here in our text. Again, this is the, the triumphal entry, the account of the first Palm Sunday. Shouts are taking place there from coming forth from the crowd. You can see uh, some of that reflected in verse 38. Again, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, which is interesting because it, that's coming from Luke's gospel. And if you go back and you read that first Christmas account, that sounds very much like what the angels said when Jesus first arrived on the scene. Now why? Why is this cry coming forth from the crowd? Well, you skip back just one verse and you see in verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So just extrapolate from there with me for a moment. Who then likely is there in the crowd? If you go back and you read in the earlier chapters of Luke's Gospel, who might logically be assumed to be there in the crowd? The woman, shall I say, who was of an unsavory reputation that washed his feet with her tears. Um, the demoniac, that is to say the man who was in, possessed by these demons, he freed this man, Jairus, Jairus, and his daughter who was once dead, likely there in the crowd. The woman whose flow of blood Jesus miraculously stopped. The boy whose lunch was multiplied far beyond even anything I saw at the men's breakfast yesterday. Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, the tax collector up in the sycamore tree that Jesus had just engaged with earlier in chapter 19. All these folks are likely there, you understand? Now think of the things that they have seen. And think of the things that they have heard and join with them in their cry, Blessed is the King. When we understand the nature of this King's rule, how can we not join with them in their shouts, in their cries, Blessed is the King. If you put yourself in their sandals, what else can you say? What else can you say? What else would be appropriate and right? Now, that said, I said understanding the nature of his rule. What is the nature of his rule? And I think you can see that here in the text. Three things. First, his praise is unstoppable. This is in your outline. His praise is unstoppable. His heart is breakable. And his passion is unquenchable. You put those three things together... And you understand them, and they begin to make their way into your heart. And you too will find yourself crying out, Blessed is the King. Let's look at these things in turn. First, uh, his praise is unstoppable. Verses 39 and 40 again, Blessed is the King 
who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. There's a very interesting dialogue uh, exchange going on here between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees being the uptight, their, their, their robes are a little too tight. The, the, the uptight religious people uh, of, of the day and, and Jesus. They are, shall I say, at the very least annoyed with Jesus. They don't like what he's been teaching. They don't care for the company that he keeps. And now his followers are all but saying, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the long-awaited anointed, promised one, the king, the savior sent of God. So they're getting anxious. They can see the crowds are swelling. I mean, it's a big crowd anyway there in Jerusalem because of the Passover. It's exploding, overflowing with people, and now they're getting riled up. And there's a, that's a little, there's a little problem there because you've got this occupying Roman army who tended to not like crowds getting stirred up and were known to put them down in brutal ways. So the Pharisees are concerned about what's going on, and so they, they plead with Jesus, shut them up, shut them up, make them stop, and Jesus refuses. Verse 40, again, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, that is the people, the very stones would cry out. You see, he accepts their praise because of who he is. He knows himself to be the very one they're screaming about. So he accepts this praise. It's a, there's a, clearly he's come to a new stage in his ministry up to this point. He's been keeping a low profile, telling people even when they know who he is, shh, it's not time yet, but a shift has taken place. And now it's time. It's time for people to know. And he's moving forward into the spotlight. So he accepts this praise. He encourages this praise. He accepts the praise because of who he is. He encourages the praise because of who they are. His people. His followers. They need to say this. It is right. It is completely fitted and appropriate that they would say what they are saying. There's a sense in which they can't help it. It's just flowing out of them as surely as breath is coming forth from my lungs. They can't help it. Jesus says, I mean, it's so stunning when you think of what he says. If they keep quiet, these stones will speak in their place. Now those stones, those stones, part of his creation, he is God, you know. Those stones owing their very existence, their stoniness, to his hand. Those stones likely, by the way, are the stones of the temple. Because that's where likely they are geographically in the movement of events. These stones, if they don't cry out, they will. His praise is unstoppable. It can't be suppressed. It's going to erupt. Julian the Apostate was Constantine the Great's, uh, he was the, the Roman emperor that came after Constantine the Great. He actually happened to be Constantine the Great's nephew. He's called Julian the Apostate because though, it's, wouldn't you like to be known that way through all human history? But he's known in that way because though he was raised with the faith in his home, 
he, in time, he rejected it. And he decided he wanted to return Rome to its glory days by restoring paganism to the empire. And so as a part of that, he decided that he got wind of the fact that there was this prophecy in the Old Testament that said Babylon was never to be rebuilt. So he decided to take the Roman army and go marching into Mesopotamia and take it and rebuild it. But on June the 26th in the year 363, as his army was doing battle with the Persian army, a sword ran him through. And Julian the Apostate's last words were this. Thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. You cannot suppress this king's praise. He will be praised. He will be honored. He will be recognized. It's not a matter of, of if, but how. Now, my friends, please hear me say this. You don't have to believe this. You can spurn all this if you want to. It won't change a thing, though, in terms of who he is. You can reject it. You can say, I don't care. I've heard enough. That's fine. But it won't change reality. Wishing it was different, believing it was different, will not change who he is. It will, however, change how things go when you meet him. You might want to consider that. Another thing to consider, if in fact you are a follower of Jesus, if in fact you find yourself as a part of you gravitating towards the cry of the crowds, you might find yourself over time being unable to not say things like, blessed is the king. Because your heart's beginning to beat in cadence with his. You might find yourself, your prayers erupting into song, if you're not careful. You might find um, your testimony, the storytelling of his work, his love, his ways in your life, sounding like the exp an expression of love and thankfulness to those who are listening, if you're not careful. Oh, and my fellow Presbyterians, in the course of a worship service, if you're not careful, you might find yourself smiling. And maybe even clapping. Oh no, not that. Because his praise cannot be suppressed. His praise is unstoppable. So the cry that needs to go forth, ought to go forth, will go forth. Blessed is the king. That's the first thing we see here. There's a second though. And it's stunning considering the first thing. This king, his unstoppable praise, his heart is breakable. His art is breakable. Listen to what we see just in, first we'll look at what we see. Listen to what we hear in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. What's going on here? Can you imagine the scene? The crowds are yelling. The cloaks are going down. The palm branches are being raised. There's shouts of joy and acclamation and all these things. And the king, the coming king, is looking at the city and he's beginning to weep. going on here? Why? Why this weeping king? Because of the rejection of his people. That is to say, they're rejecting him. After all that they have witnessed, after all that they have heard, after 
the, the words of the prophets that they have been raised with, the words spoken there in the synagogue week after week after week that they have grown up with, John the Baptist heralding who this was that was coming, Jesus himself, his teaching, what they have not just heard, but what they've seen as well. You know, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, the deaf hearing, the dead getting up. And they reject him, spurn him. And so he's weeping. He's weeping because of how they're responding. He's weeping because he knows what's coming. Here's another historical fact, not just this first triumphal entry on that first Palm Sunday, but in 70 A.D. Jesus alludes to this in this text. When the Roman army came and besieged Jerusalem and nearly leveled it because they rejected the time of his visitation, his coming. So he's weeping. He speaks. He speaks what they need to hear. He weeps. And please understand by that, that's not just a little misting of the eye. The Greek here is speaking to a heaving of the man's chest. Riding on that colt. He's weeping. Great grief. O oh, Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem. That you would repent, that you would turn, that you would see, that you would hear. But your heart is so hard, and the hardness of their hearts breaks his own. Don't for a minute think that this king is cold and aloof and standoffish. He is not. He is not. In Oklahoma City, there is a memorial to a terrorist attack that took place 19 years ago this week where the Murrah building, Murrah Federal building, once stood. There are 168 chairs sitting there in silence as a memorial to those who were killed that terrible, terrible day. Across the street, though, at St. Joseph's Catholic Church, there is a statue, a statue of Jesus, now, it's interesting, his back is actually turned to the Murrah building, or the site where it was, I should say. But his face is turned towards a wall, a wall where there are 168 empty spaces. And Jesus, this statue, he is depicted with his hand over his face, bowed and weeping as he faces that terrible terrible day and the loss of, that all, of all that was represented there. His heart is breakable. Whatever you may have heard, he is not the cosmic abuser. He is moved by our pain and moves towards it. If this morning, in your, as you think back on your past and your memories are plaguing you, things that you did and didn't do, you're seized with regret, He's coming alongside you. This morning in your presence, right now, you find yourself tempted beyond your ability to cope, crippled with weaknesses that you don't know what to do with. He comes beside you. He's moved. He's moving towards you. So much so that he took all the sin and misery upon himself. We can have what has been called substantial healing, even in this life. 
real, not complete, but real healing and freedom from all the sin and misery of this life. And one day, it will be full and final and complete, his healing. Know that he has moved. His heart is breakable. My friends, blessed. Blessed be the king. His praise is unstoppable. His heart is breakable. And one last thing, his passion is unquenchable. Verses 45 and 46. He entered the temple, began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And you keep reading, and you read of the religious officials and their hostility and hatred and the plots that are beginning. And what's going on here? You know, if you, many of you probably have Bibles that that section of text is set aside by something like Jesus cleanses the temple or it's cleaning of, of the temple. What do you clean? You clean filth, right? You clean stuff that needs to be cleaned, and the temple needed to be cleaned because of all the corruption and the callousness, the corruption, the money changers and the animals for the sacrifices that were being sold, all of which was needed and appropriate, but the problem was it was being done at cutthroat prices to make a profit, and a heavy profit at that, and all being done in a way with a spirit as though, oh, nobody will catch us, nobody will know, nobody's going to, like a den of robbers. And with that corruption and that callousness, because this is all being overseen with the approval of the religious officials, it's all okay. The temple is now a market bazaar. There in the court of the Gentiles, the one place in the temple facilities where non-Jews could go. They were allowed to go and pray and meditate. And this is what's going on. And Jesus will not stand for it. So he cleanses the temple. Now, again, imagine the scene. You had one contrast with him riding in on the colt and weeping. Here's another scene. Jesus in the temple, turning over tables, driving people out with cords of whips, telling them, get out! The chaos that had to have ensued then. Can you imagine Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, is cleansing the temple. Why? Because of his heart for the lost. He has come to seek and to save the lost. And he knows that this is going to push his, his enemies right over the edge. He knows that it's going to set the stage for the final act. Such is his passion that will not be quenched. His passion to come and seek and save the lost. There is a fire and a fury about him. And it hasn't changed. He's still cleansing the temple. He's still moving into our lives, turning over tables, and driving out money changers, and purging dross, and pruning dead branches. Why? Because he's come to seek and to save the lost and call us to partner with him in that work. This is a great season for that, to express something of that, to, to partner, to, to respond to the call to partner with him in this work.
seeking and saving the lost. It's Easter, right? Coming up. Now, I know it's been co-opted. I got it by the eggs and the bunnies and the bonnets. I got that. Who cares? Let's build on it. Let's build on it. Let's seize it. I would, I would challenge you this week. Commit to prayer and thoughtful conversation as to who you will rub shoulders with this upcoming week that you could have a simple conversation that would go something like this. What do you think this whole Easter thing is about? Did you grow up as a kid with the eggs and the bunny and the whole thing? What was that like? What do, you, do you do anything now? Would you like to? Would you like to come with me next Sunday? See, it's not so hard, is it? That's not so hard. It's a simple expression of his unquenchable passion to seek and save the lost because blessed is the king. Now, I'll end with this. Okay, this king, his praise is unstoppable, his heart is breakable, his passion unquenchable. Right. He's due this kind of praise. And from our hearts, not just from the lips, but through the lips, from the heart. But I know many of you are thinking something along these lines. You don't, I got it, but you don't know what's going on in my life. You don't know the stuff that's churning in me right now. You don't know how messy it is. You don't know how hard it is for me to actually see Jesus as king. Because it looks like there's no one on any throne. I do know what that's like. Sometimes it is hard to see if there's anybody on the throne. And frankly, if you bump up against somebody this week who doesn't get that and just, just looks at you blindly, blankly, then just walk away from them. You don't need to talk to them. They don't know. They don't get it. It's like the prince and the pauper, right? That old story. Um, where the prince decides to take off his royal robes and put on the rags and go out there in the streets and nobody can guess for a moment. It doesn't seem like anybody's ruling, right? And it doesn't seem like anybody can recognize him. But does that change whether or not he's the prince? No. Does it change whether or not there's someone ruling on the throne? No. Just can't see. Just can't see. And there are times we just can't see. You see, we're living in two times, between two times, between the first and the second of his triumphal entries. The first and the second coming. In the last days, that's the way the Bible puts it. Um, that first triumphal entry, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, the shouts, the cries, the celebration, all that was a preview, a preview. And know this, that the next time he comes, that time won't hold a candle to it. There will be nothing mysterious about it. There will be nothing hidden about it. It's going to be very, very plain as to who the king is and why he has come. This king, again, whose praise is unstoppable, who even now his heart is breakable, whose passion even now 
Engaging with us is unquenchable. He's come. He's coming again. How blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. May we hear that, be able to say it, and live out of it. Blessed is the king. Let's pray. Lord, those people there that day on the streets of Jerusalem spoke better than they knew. We know that. We know. We know how things unfurled and how they played out over the coming days. But we need to hear what they're saying. Because whether or not they got what they were saying, they spoke truly. You are the king. Subduing hearts, ruling and defending, restraining and conquering. There's none like you with all power and authority, with all wisdom and understanding faithfulness and compassion. There's none like you. Blessed is the King. Pray that you'd help us to live out of that. Amen.